Hello, welcome to the 50-Minute Hour. This is Corey, and today I'm joined by just Calvin. Yep, Jacob is not available today. He should be back next week. But today's podcast should be very interesting nonetheless. Uh, Corey, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, I guess what's on the docket is uh, sexuality. Yeah? Yep, that is on the docket. Um, okay. Several, actually, listeners had some questions about your opinions on sexuality, especially homosexuality, you know, in the church, so we can get into that later. But why don't we just start off kind of addressing a, a basis outline of what we're going to be talking about? Well, I don't know. That that depends on the questions you ask. <laughs> I, right. guess, I, guess, I guess we were discussing one is, uh, um, what was it? Uh, e- uh, gender, sexuality is yeah, fashion. Gender, sexuality, how uh, it's, you know. Ideology is Yeah, fashion. how it's your identity is now your gender um, or sexuality. And then history of sexuality. And then um, homosexuality and, wh- and bisexuality. Okay. And then uh, the why the nuclear family is uh, responsible for all the ills that conservatives complain about. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good doctor for the show. Uh, so do you want to start with the, uh, the that outline to begin? Right. So I think we were talking about this off camera in another podcast, but basically the idea that um, what what you see with nowadays where it's like a, a sexual identity or, or ideology, um, ba- basically very few people sit, have sat down and really critically thought about the views they have. Um, and when when they express their views, they shouldn't be understood as a philosophical or ethical statement, but actually as a statement of fashion uh, or tribalism, right? Yeah. Okay, so, um, you know, like, let, let's say someone's like, uh, you know, I, I like Trump or Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. My point is, like, people get too caught up in understanding these statements as critically thought through statements, and therefore people get too aggressive with each other or angry with each other um, over these very trivial things, in my opinion, um, in the sense that we really don't have any control in politics <laughs> or whatever happens in the world. We should just submit to the fate that the gods have decided for us. What, what do you mean? We get we get to choose freely between two people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, in a bigger picture, even beyond that, um, I'm basically politically nihilist. I don't. I don't think there's any hope of redemption in, in the political sphere for okay. me. <laughs> but, um, uh, but even even more so to the point here that that these uh, statements should be understood as like fashion state, like aesthetic, subjective statements. Because again, for the vast majority of people, these things are propagandized. They're given to us unconsciously. We don't think about them critically. Um, you know, as, as Plato says in Republic, like the people who should be kings are basically philosophers that are born and raised for that purpose from birth. And everyone else should just not worry about politics because they're not minding their own business because they're not trained to be politicians. Okay. And I mean, Plato's problem is that politicians themselves aren't trained to be politicians, but the point is that the vast majority of people definitely aren't. And uh, so when we're making political statements, we we're, it's, like, it's like me talking about a car engine basically, which is to say, I have no idea what I'm talking about. And if someone doesn't know anything about car engines and they're talking about car engines, then we should interpret their statements as aesthetic judgments or subjective judgments. There's something they're interested in, almost like the type of shoes they wear. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Or, or, or what their favorite color of shirt to wear is. Okay. And, and therefore, when people get, you know, especially in America, uh, people get so aggressive and mad at each other over these sort of statements. I'm saying that this is very stupid. 
and and we should understand them as fashion statements and just move on and have another conversation about something else. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. I, I remember this past summer how heated everyone was about things and how, you know, in broad sense of things, nothing's changed since then. But it seems almost like many of these political things are trends. Sort of like uh, like different internet memes almost at that level where they come in and they're very popular. Everyone's talking about their opinion. And then, you know, a few months later, no one really cares anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, so how does that uh, wrap into the idea of sexuality and gender being an identity? Yeah, so, I mean, I imagine most, most people are aware that uh, sexual identity is a pretty recent phenomenon uh, in the sense that we actually think of ourselves as individuals that are that even have a self-contained self. And what I mean by that is that in most of history, the self was very fluid and ambiguous. And it was like the self, the thoughts you had were not understood by most people throughout history as originating from within. They could have come from demons, uh, angels, demons. Um, They could come from gods, the gods. Um, They could come from our ancestors. And even beyond this, it was just the idea that a self was very much in relation to your family, to your nation, your religion, your church. Um, And as you get closer to the Enlightenment, and especially after Enlightenment, the self becomes this almost self-contained thing, which is to the point where we're now today, where all these thoughts we understand is coming from within us. And if I have this weird thought, that's from me. You know, it's not a demon or the gods or whatever. and, and with that, especially after the 20s and Edward Bernays, we've really come to identify what the self is because we don't have all these contexts for understanding ourselves that most people did historically, like nation, family, whatever. We still relate to these things, but they don't really constitute our idea of selfhood as much as they did historically. So people feel this void in identity, this void in who they are. And so they find political ideologies or gender ideologies or whatever in order to constitute an idea of self. And so... It, basically, when you take out religion or faith, ideology comes in to fill that void. And instead of religion, I, constituting people's concept of self, um, which is now much more structured than ever before, much more solid, uh, reified, um, that which makes it all the more critical to a person's functioning in that sense, and and makes us, you know, think of ourselves as free and independent. We're actually much more enslaved, and. Uh, this concept of self so much more dominates our psyche, and we and we need so much more to have an understanding of what it is than ever before. I think um, it it makes it all the more addictive to construe uh, our concepts of selfhood by way of these ideologies. Okay, I think that I think that makes sense. Uh, can you? Uh, I guess what one question someone wanted to ask was more: When did this start? And you mentioned before we really started rolling the nuclear family. Yeah, so I mean, it goes in phases. Um, But, I mean, Edward Bernays is what I was talking about. And I've mentioned before, just watch Century of the Self. It's a free documentary on YouTube. And um, that's really going to say most of what I would say about this. Um, But but beyond that, um, you can look 1920s to 1950s where capitalism, materialism are really coming into their full and people begin to identify themselves by what they purchase or these identities that are sold through advertisements. 
And so you get, so for instance, you get to what, like the nuclear family in the 50s where, I mean, in, in a sense that historically, just about any culture, I mean, the way family was understood always varies, but you practically, you had multi-generational housing. You had your mom, your dad, your mom's mom, your mom's dad, and their dad's and mom's, or, you know, your father's dad's and mom's, and your uncles and your brothers. And, you know, the it, it's kind of funny because now we're in a weird way returning back to this where sons are staying with their moms or mm-hmm. parents now. And, um, you know, a lot of people see this as regressive. And I'm like, well, it depends on the context. But this is actually in a weird way in return just returning to the old-fashioned um, where even if you're married, you go to live on the farm of your family. Yeah. Um, you might have your own house or abode or but uh, or your own wing, I guess. But um, the the family is really a small village. And, you know, psychoanalytically, the large family structure is sort of nature's defense mechanism against neuroses or whatever psych- psychological problems are, uh, you know, that would lead to the the sort of sexual fetishism, let's say, that conservatives tend to complain about. So, um, what, what do you mean exactly when you say conservatives? Politically or like the, the uh, kind of base conservative Christians? Is that what you're... Well, kinda? the Christian right is a part of the conservative movement. Okay. But I mean, by conservative, I just mean... I mean, to me, they're all on the left because, because conservatives are always defending in one age, right? This is a very common adage, you know, what's, what's going to be forbidden in the, ne- in the next. So conservatives are always on a losing battle. Okay, that's why they're they're stupid, <laughs> um, because they don't they don't they don't really. I mean, what are they conserving? Like conservatives are always paying lip service to traditional values and all this other stuff, but all the stuff they're defending are, is not traditional. Things like the nuclear family, traditional as in the fifties. Yeah, or or even like, for instance, like good heterosexual values. Well, my my point is like the whole the whole heterosexual homosexual dichotomy is is poisonous. That that's why there's this, you know understanding of sexuality and identity to begin with is because we sort of submitted our identities to whatever language psychiatry has. And so now we do this really weird thing as moderns where we invest a lot of psychical self, our ideas of selfhood, psychical energy into the concept of what sexual object choice we have. So, you know, I'm straight, I'm gay, I'm bi, I'm pan, asexual, whatever. It's like this is just such a weird way to understand selfhood to, to me. And, and just speaking historically, it's, it's very novel. It's very strange. Um, historically, people did not think of themselves by, in, in regards to their sexuality. And, and sexuality, I think, was, for a variety of reasons, much more fluid historically. I mean, you look, for instance, in orthodox um, confession manuals from the early days or like uh, monastics, you know, where you're dealing with all men. And it's sort of just taken for granted that someone could sleep with someone of the same sex at any point. Um, it's, not, it's not like people really understood each other as having exclusive sexual object choice. Okay. Um, and so the question that arises from this is that, you know, because most, I think a lot of people not, will say usually nowadays that, you know, they're exclusively gay or they're exclusively straight. You don't really have much of what manifests bisexuality, right? What we now call the bisexuality, Okay. Well, you know, Freud says everyone is inherently bisexual, but manifest bisexuality, he also says, interestingly, is rarer in men um, than homosexuality. Um, and that has to do with Oedipal development. But, but basically, it seems to me that there is this shift sometime in the 18th and 19th century, especially like with Victorianism um, and the Victorian family structure, which is so, sort of a 
predecessor to the nuclear family structure, um, that sexuality became much less dimorphic. It became much more solid w- along with the solidification of selfhood. So they seem to mirror each other in development. And what I mean is that, and so far people were sort of just potentially manifestly bisexual, what we would now call bisexual throughout most of history. And that was just sort of assumed without having an, an idea of bisexuality. Um, nowadays, whether you go one way or the other towards exclusive object choice in regards to sex, um, it, 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 it develops into this exclusivity that I don't think really seems to be the case historically. So we're much more um, exclusive in sexual orientation now than it seems to me ever before. I mean, this is very speculative, but this is just what I'm gathering. And then my theory for this, again, has to do with the, the shrinking of the family structure. Because without going into too much Freudian, you know, psychoanalytic jargon or whatever, basically the, the sexual object choice becomes all the more traumatic edibly in small family structures. And so that gets solidified much more intensely, especially in men. Um, women, because of their Oedipal situation, tend to be much more resistant to this. And I think this is why even today, most women, even women who identify as straight or heterosexual or women who identify as totally gay for that matter, um, are much more likely to exhibit bisexual behavior in their life than most men who identify as heterosexual or straight or gay, you know. Um, So, but men in particular, and again, this has to do with the trauma of the Oedipal state for men and castration complex and all this, um, seem much more susceptible given small family structures to develop exclusive sexual object choice. And I think we tend to have a habit of retroactively, narcissistically projecting how we feel about our identity and how we feel about our sexuality onto the rest of history. So we look at Greece or, you know, feudal Japan and say, oh, you know, these people were gay or homosexual. And it's like, that's not really, and so far as we understand it, what that is today. You know, there is this debate and still is in, in some degree in the queer theory where whether or not um, homosexuality or being gay or queer or whatever, whether or not that's uh, something that is distinguishable in an essence of itself. So this is why a lot of queer, far leftist, you know, queer theorists argued against something like gay marriage because, and, I, and I've met gay people who are, who think gay marriage was the worst thing to happen to the gays. And the reason is, is because their understanding of queerness is that it's, it's, it's something into itself that is not a participant in the full sense of society. It's always othered. And the moment you bring it into to marriage, this idea of a heterosexual uh, archetype, I guess, um, which, which it isn't in the sense that, again, the whole concept of heterosexuality and homosexuality are totally modern. But in the sense that marriage is understood as being procreative, okay? So you then take that into that signifier. And now gayness just becomes something else that is a part of the capitalist superstructure to be bought and sold in, in identity, prepackaged identity. So gays get married, they have 2.5 Chinese kids, and they pay taxes, and now they're just another Joe and Rob, you know, down the street rather than Joe and Robin, I guess. And they're just normalized. They've been the, the sort of otherness that made queerness radical has been castrated from gay identity through through marriage. So they've been um, interjected into the capitalist superstructure. Okay, so this, I'm, I'm summarizing, but this is basically the 
old school left queer theorist critique of, of heterosexual or heteronormatizing homosexuality. And again, I'm using scare quotes because I think all these terms are, should, we should just have a memory wipe in, in the entire world of any sexual, identif- sexual identity. Um, even, even something like our actual sex. Like, and this is where I think a lot of the transgenderism stuff actually comes from, ironically. People did not really seem in most cultures, and, and it's weird because it goes both ways. In one sense, they had a much more structured, traditional idea of sex in terms of male and female and how that plays out into society, obviously, right? And religion and, and patriarchal structures or whatever. But at the same time, I really am not convinced people saw their sex as that particular to their identity. And I think that has to do a lot with religious metaphysics that most cultures have. But like, people did not really seem very attached to their idea of male or female. It was just sort of something they had to do in relation to, and, and for that reason, right? This is the same reason like, it's not that I'm a woman, therefore I am othered and bad because I can't participate in say being a priest or being, you know, uh, top of the hierarchy or whatever. Um, because they didn't understand that as integral to who they were as a person. And I think this is because esoterically, at least, if not exoterically in many myths and, and, and religions, people have always understood, you know, going with St. Samuel the New, for example, Adam, the first man, whoever was the first person created by God, was male and female, both, okay? When God creates Eve, he is literally taking the female out of Adam. And, and put, you know, for lack of a better word, Adam was hermaphrodite, okay? And so when he, ta- he takes Eve from, from Adam and, and, and makes him into this othered Adam, Eve. That is his female. And, you know, like uh, Aristophanes' speech in Plato's Symposium, we were tied together, male and female. And when we split apart, that was the origin of love. And now we're always searching for our other half. But this is, this is a very comedic way of explaining what you find in pretty much every origin myth, which is that the, the way we become whole again, the way we reattach ourselves to God is through eros of the other, by becoming united again. Um, to this male-female hermaphroditic uh, unity. And for that reason, that, that carried itself unconsciously or even manifestly in religious myth for people throughout history that we've basically discarded in favor of psychi- psychiatricism and biological sex, sex uh, understanding of biological sex. And so now sex has been demythologized. And, and because of that, people now really see themselves as their sex and they identify themselves, not just sexuality. This, this is even before we started identifying ourselves by our sexuality. But now they're identifying themselves even, even firstly by their, their sex, their actual biological sex. So we put so much psychological stock in are we male or female? And I think that's why, uh, it, you know, again, conservatives are very critical of transgenderism and all this, uh, all this sort of gender ideology. Well, my point is this only exists because you so... Uh, overextended concepts of sex, biological sex, as identifier marks. And, and you've mass-produced heterosexuality, basically. And if you don't fit the mold, yeah. you go searching for and something And so when, when, you, when you play with nature like this, and again, this is why conservatives to me are not conservative, because they're always in, they always end up not only defending, but actually doing very modernist things, like, like heterosexuality, like in the sense that they really sell this as an identity. In, in the sort of 1950s hegemon, you know, whatever. And things like transgenderism are, a, in a certain sense, a natural sociological, psychological response to the sort of neuroses that you saw with, you know, 
a conservative culture um, extending identity based on sexual identity. So painting this picture of the straight white male or whatever does this and this and this in his life, if someone doesn't want to do that, doesn't want, you know, the house with the picket fence and three kids, right. they might rebel against it in so, that way. So, so something like what we now call in the DSM, um, gender dysphoria, right? Like that wouldn't even, of course, so don't misunderstand me. My, you would have people throughout history who maybe did not really feel exactly as the sexual marker uh, or the, the um, uh, subject, the sex subject, that they, the role they played in culture. But it really wasn't that disturbing to them in the sense that it was not really such a marker of sexual identity in, 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 our, in, our, in our own value of who we are as it is nowadays. Okay, so when, when that becomes solidified, in modern psychiatric dominated culture, um, well, then it, it's quite natural that if someone has that same feeling that people have throughout history, well, now that's going to be way more intense and cause way more anxiety. And now you're going to get something like gender dysphoria popping up left and right because, because we first place sex as such a large non-transcendent role in our everyday identity. And so that's, it's a natural response when someone says, well, actually, you know what, now that I think about it, I don't really feel like this sex. Well, again, historically, that wasn't much of a problem because you didn't really identify that much by your sex. But now we live in a culture, the culture that conservatives even defend, where you understand yourself as a male, female, mother, father, in this, in this very, like, again, sort of ca hyper-capitalistic sense, um, and, and particularly in terms of your identity. Okay, well, then naturally, if someone now doesn't feel like that, well, they're going to start having this intense anxiety. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, again, it's sort of ironic that, you know, conservatives are always critiquing these ideologies, but they're really the ones who did it. They're the ones with the blood on their hands. Um, the identity thing is interesting. I'm in a sociology 101 class at UK, and on the first day, we talked about identity, and he wanted us to write down five things about our identity. and Every single person had things like caring, generous, but every single person had male or female really? or gender fluid, something that everyone included huh. their gender identity. And I talked to him afterwards uh, several weeks later, and he was talking about how when he started in the field, this was like way more foreign to him. Mm -hmm. He says he always does this kind of little experiment every year and the like amount of people who include their gender has just kept going up and up in their identity that's interesting that there's there is such and i do i do agree very much that this uh kind of the conservative kind of mindset of what you're supposed to be is very large i mean growing up there are expectations for what you do as a male i guess you know at times I felt I don't want to do that, but I never really put much thought, but I guess I could definitely see how people could, you know, feel panic about that if they don't identify with this very specific. So, but do you think, you talk about how the conservatives are the ones with the blood on their hands. I had a friend uh, talking about, she's Catholic in a Catholic church, and she doesn't know if she can keep going there because she very much believes gay marriage should be right and accepted and her, her church, she's in this Bible study and they talk about how gay marriage is wrong and, you know, sex's only purpose is to reproduce. So if you're not reproducing, it's sinful. And she had a lot of troubles with that. But you say conservatives are kind of the ones with the blood on their hands. Where do you stand on that? It, whether it's 
uh, in the church? I'm not a bishop. <laughs> um, again, this is only a problem because we understand ourselves by our sexual, and we have even this concept of homosexuality, heterosexuality. All right. What, was, what has been forbidden in the church historically is sodomy. Okay. What, what would you just, uh, and, and sodomy is okay. not an act that is exclusively between people of the same sex. So what the church, according to its own traditions, should really be talking about is sodomy, which applies to both so-called heterosexuals and so-called homosexuals. What do you it's describe not a, sodomy as? Like, how would you... Sodomy, well, it depends. It, it varies in East and West, and then even within those, it varies. But you can basically boil it down uh, to sexual acts that are not in the proper telos, which basically for the church fathers means um, not penis to vagina. Okay. okay. Um, in so many words. Okay. Now, but this usually is not what churches preach against. They preach against these, again, these very modern concepts of gay or homosexuality or gay marriage or whatever. And again, this is not, the, the, the church is sort of, I think the, the Catholic church in this case is sort of shooting itself in the foot here because it's already started to play the game of modernity. Okay. Um, and you will find queer theorists, again, who are actually very much in the opinion that uh, religious institutions or whatever should stick to their guns and their traditions here. Because again, that's an aspect of what others, uh, the, the, for, the sort of foreign otherness of queerness and makes it something that has its own special radical or um, anti-oppressive role, I guess. And when churches start to bend the knee to these things, um, then one, churches sort of, religion sort of loses its flavor because it, I think, I think what it, it's, I'm going to be Lacanian here and say that a part of what makes religion mysterious and interesting is that it, it teaches things and says things that we disagree with and that uh, disturbs us. And I think we should be disturbed by religion. I don't think religion, I don't, I, I really don't like the saccharine, Jesus is my friend, he's my homeboy, you know. I really don't. So again, to be Lacanian, my point is like, it's what's forbidden. It's what's prohibited that makes eros, that makes desire, that makes mystery. Eros is the birth of the mother of mystery. Okay. We need the eros. And even if we're not religious ourselves, we need religious institutions to hold the mystery and eros and to forbid a lot of things. It's good to have, I mean, this is why um, sex isn't sexy anymore. There's nothing forbidden. Um, you know, unless you're going to like sacrifice a child or something, you know, there's nothing forbidden in, in it. So I'm being a bit facetious, <laughs> but my point is, is like, you, you need prohibitions. And the more prohibitions in the sexual life, the better, because when you break them, that's what makes it more interesting. <laughs> now there's not really any rules to break anymore. Desire can only really come from what is forbidden. Okay. okay. I guess that's why I so, saw so, that said BDSM like store, the, the profits <laughs> are like on the rise recently for like handcuffs. <laughs> so I guess, I guess my point is here, I don't really agree or disagree with the church because I think the church even talking about these things is so weird historically. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's involved in this very petulant culture war. I think on these sorts of things, the, the church is just better like silent. And if people ask them, they're just like, yeah, sodomy is a sin, whatever. But they, don't, they shouldn't get wrapped up in this sort of like cultural political mash because it, it ruins the mystery, the sacredness of what makes, and this isn't just with the Catholics, this is with any religion. Um, with, with Christianity specifically applies because of the canons and all this stuff about sodomy or whatever. But again, 
it's like, well, if you, if you want to ask the question, what is forbidden? Well, it's sodomy. It's not homosexuality. It's not gayness. It's, it's sodomy. But why, is the, why would there be such an emphasis from the church on homosexuality when you, you said sodomy would be anything that's not penis be, to vagina? But I never hear anyone talking because, about how Because religion functions, especially in America, than most of the world today, and it has historically, but even more so than ever before because of how politicized everything is. Religion functions as political ideology. I think most religious people are not really religious. They, they are people who find religion useful. And in a certain sense, there's nothing wrong with that. Religion has always had this role. And it's to be expected. We don't, you don't have to be religious to follow a religion. Um, I think I've talked about this concept in the podcast before. Re religion serves many good functions other than just being religious. Okay. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, when, when religion, true religion, when, when culture becomes secularized, okay, when real religion goes to the bay and, and sort of becomes, again, this part of your identity, um, rather than something that's super identity, super identity, super cultural, super political. It, it, it goes beyond the sphere of politics. It goes beyond the sphere of everyday and just engrosses everything and raptures everything. Um, that's what religion has done historically, pagan, Christian, whatever. We no longer live in that. Religion is this self-Kantian construct that we identify ourselves by. And we say, well, you believe what you believe and I believe what I believe. Religion no longer functions as this super rational otherness, okay? And with that, all of these sort of worldly things infects religion. Religion just becomes a sort of political um, monolith that is used by conservatives and liberals or leftists or whatever alike. Um, and it, it just cheapens religion. So again, my point here is that if, if someone asks a priest or a bishop, what does the church teach? We'll go to the canons, okay? But it, it's marking it in this sort of modern jargon of psychiatric jargon of homosexuality or gay or whatever it just it just it ruins everything on both sides and again i think we should all forget these terms even though i'm having to use them in this yeah. in, to talk about these things these are, we've really just psychiatrized uh we're, we're all in this insane asylum now where we all understand ourselves by these i mean in, in my opinion all sexuality is evil <laughs> I, i'm i'm with the church fathers like saint Simeon the new all right who see Sexuality is, um, so let, let me talk about this in, in terms of homarciology, you know, in terms of sin. So if I say sexuality, even within the confines of marriage is a sin, all right, well, that's technically a heresy. Okay, so what do I mean by this? We are constantly sinning in the sense that we are not Christ. If you think about it, in, this, in, this, in the true etymological sense of sin, to miss the mark, what's the mark? Being Christ, okay, being a child of God, okay? None of us are doing that. So should we constantly go into confession or whatever? Well, no, not exactly. Okay, so there, there's these two senses of sin. There, there's sin in which we have the sort of personal, deeper relationship with. And then there's just sort of this passive, not even a sense of omission in the sense like sin by omission, but in the sense that the omission of the fact that we're not being perfect. That even, I mean, what's interesting, both in the West, what's interesting, even in the West and the East, saints who are married, almost always, it's, it's two conditions. They either married and remain celibate or they didn't really seem to start becoming saints until after they married and had kids and then became celibate. Okay, so, and it actually is, a in the West, it actually is a heresy to say that the celibate life is equal to or lower than the married life. So the church historically has always understood celibacy or non-sexual state of being. Well, it's, in terms of your eros is not directed towards an other human, but like Adam, straight to God. You know, if your eros doesn't, 
become sexualized, it has to go somewhere. So it, it, it rises up, it sublimates, you know, as Freud would say. So, and that, that even Freud, by Freud's own admission, is what makes the greatest achievements of religion and art and literature is when sexuality is sublimated. Now, most people can't live that life. And that's why it's ideal. That's why you're being like the angels, like the monks. But in a certain sense, all sexuality that is not directed towards God, like in the Song of Songs, the, the sense of eros that is directed towards God, all that sexuality has fallen. So it's not for me, is, is, is gayness a sin, is, is, is straightness a sin, whatever. It's all sinful. It's all fallen. Um, and again, even per se, right? You could, you could say celibacy itself can be infected with pride very easily. So even that, I'm not saying like, I'm just speaking per se as such. I'm not saying necessarily if you're celibate, you're automatically better than everybody. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. And I'm also not saying in the strict sense that having sex, even within the confines of marriage is a sin in the normal way people understand that word. Um, what I am saying is that all sexual, I'm very Augustinian here. As much as I like to critique Augustine, I agree with him on this. I think he was one of the few church fathers who really understood how fallen sex, sexuality is. All sexuality to me is just from the get-go in uh, missing the mark because it, and so far it's not directed towards God. Okay. So it's like, oh, you think homosexuality is a sin or whatever. It's like, I think all sexuality is a sin. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really... And again, this is probably not what most Christians or Orthodox or Catholics would say. This is, uh, even among the church fathers who do say this, I, I will say they are a minority. But this is the view I take. And I think this has to do with my training in psychoanalysis. You know, the inside of Freud is really commonsensical, which is like, we are really, really fucked up people. And we are really fucked up in, in the realm of sexuality. Um, I don't think there is any healthy, normal sexual, sexual. And again, this is, this is sort of the beauty of sexuality in a sense, isn't it? It's happy fault. Mia culpa, as Augustine will say, is that it, it, it is sort of inherently both absolutely disgusting and mystifying at the same time, which in some ways is really what God is. He's, he disgusts us because he does things that don't make any sense. He made the platypus, all right? He made a creature that swims up your pee stream and is extremely hurtful to actually piss out of the urethia. He, he made these, you know, it's kind of like- What creature is that? It's like some creature in South America. That's why you can't pee into the lakes in, in there because they swim with the pee. I mean, it's kind of like, you could, you could reimagine the whole book of Job where God comes down to Job. It's like, where were you when I laid the foundations of earth? Where were you when I, you know, you know, put the Leviathan in the waters? You could have him just doing a National Geographic episode. Like, where were you when I created this really, you know, fucked up thing? You know, God's like Frankenstein. I mean, he made some really weird stuff. Whoever this guy is, he's not someone you want to get too close with. You know, I'm, and again, I'm speaking on both sides here. There's a certain mystery to God that is disgusting. The cross, and this is one thing I do appreciate about the West, is the focus on the crucifixion over that of the East. Um, I, I, obviously, they had to be carried away with it, but there is something beautiful about meditating on the disgusting aspect of the cross with the blood, like, like a nice Grunewald painting, the absolute disgust of Christ on the cross, his flesh hanging, the rips in his back being torn out, the, you know, just like this bloody mess, all right? And, and then saying, that's God. It's insane. It's disgusting. But there it is. And you can't really do anything but, but meditate on that. Um, sexuality mirrors that. Because no matter how intense, you know, especially for men, after the orgasm, there's this, there's this, no matter how beautiful the person is you just had sex with, there's this sense where, well, this is absolutely disgusting. Post-nut clarity. Yes. And I think 
even and so it's it's very interesting how if you think about this theologically in the sense that God uses sexuality and again in the, in the sense that it is a part of the fall. He uses it as something that mirrors himself, even though it is, again, in my sense, like a sin already, to reconfigure us through the fall, through this mystery, disgusting mystery of sex, through the Oedipal trauma that every child goes through, which is their own leaving the Garden of Eden, in a way. Every Oedipal, we all repeat the sin of Adam. We all repeat the sin of Eve in our inner female and masculine self, in our anima and animus, if you want to be union about it. We all repeat that in our own mythology. Every person has their mythology and their mythology follows many different gods, but everyone does the fall from the Garden of Eden in the state of Oedipus. All right. I mean, there's something very interesting Freud says that most Freudians don't really comment too much on, which is where he says, most people in their, in their Oedipal mystery of figuring out what sex is, um, they realize they can't figure it out and they just sort of assent to mystery and never really bother with it much. But he says, you have a few people who become obsessed um, for one reason or another, and they, they never feel satisfied that they weren't able to answer the Oedipal. Now, they, everyone represses it, but he says there's a few people who never get over the trauma, not of the Oedipus complex itself, but being unable to solve the, the riddle of the Sphinx, as Oedipus does. Um, and these people for Freud are basically the, the philosophers. They're, they're paranoiacs whose paranoia, instead of being turned outward, is turned inward. They're like, I, I can't believe I couldn't figure it out. And so they dedicate the rest of their life. They're never comfortable with truth as convenience, as most people are. They dedicate themselves paranoically, obsessively to what does it mean to be an I? What does it mean to exist? You know, these sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, just archetypal, stereotypical philosophical questions, um, but an infantile state. And that develops into a philosopher. A philosopher is just someone who was not happy that he couldn't solve the Oedipal complex. What, what exactly would the Oedipal complex be? So in, in the most base terms, it's just where, um, for Freud, um, a child has to deal with the trauma of the fact that he is not the sole object of his mother's affection. Now, it's different. It's very different between women and men. But basically, the mother's the first other. We don't, when we're born, we don't even understand the world as like a separate object to, to our We're Totally narcissistic. All right. And we, the first person we other is the mother. We figure she has her own desires and we're like, oh, but the mother wants me. She wants to breastfeed me. She wants to, you know, take care of me, <clears throat> wants to love me. Um, but then we, we find this other curious other, which is the father. He's the second other. <coughs> and then brothers and sisters are the third other. But, and that plays its own role in the Oedipal state. <laughs> but we start to realize that the mother has desires for the father that even dominate over her desires for us. And then we get jealous of the father, okay? And then we want to kill the father. We want the mother for ourselves. And whatever daddy is doing to mother, that's what we want to do to mother, okay? So this, that's, the, that's the Oedipal mystery. That's the mystery of sex. Whatever is, what, what is daddy doing with mom that I'm not able to do? People, I mean, especially Americans, tend to overly sexualize in a genital sense what Freud is getting at. In a sense, is, is it like you want to have sex with your mom? Well, okay, in a sense, but not probably in the way you're thinking. It's not, and it, it's funny because Americans are so weirded out by this, but then everyone comes to me and says, I had a dream where I'm having sex with my mother or father. What does it mean? And, you know, am I, do I want to have sex with my mom and dad? And I say, don't worry, it's much worse than that, you know? So it's like, um, it, it, Americans tend to over-genitalize sex, uh, especially in understanding, interpreting Freud. It's much more intense. It's much deeper than that. 
genital sexuality is just a manifestation of a much deeper whole body eros. Our whole body is a sexual object in a sense. Okay. Um, and it's in the Oedipal state, that is in full reveal. All right. It only later localizes itself in the genitals um, after puberty. Okay. Okay. I think I, I think I understand this. So it's, it's not as simple as oh, when you're young, you want to have sex with your mom. Right. It's, it's much more okay. complex. Yeah. Is that one of the reasons like Freud has been somewhat like dismissed by a lot of modern uh, Well, uh, a part of it. I mean, the reason I think a large part he's dismissed in psychology, especially in America. I mean, you go to South America or Europe, it's a different story. But in America, we like fast food. Okay. We like as an ideology. We, we don't like looking deep into ourselves. We're a very pragmatic culture. CBT is the American psychology. Okay, psychoanalysis is all about looking deep into yourself and realizing the darkness of your sinful state. Psych- psychoanalysis is very Christian in this way. Whereas Protestantism, it tends to be more like, it gives lip service to the idea that we're all fallen, but it's sort of this democratic fallenness and it's not like we're the chief of sinners. So... And I'm generalized. I'm just talking about the cultural effects of Protestant, not necessarily what an individual Protestant thinks, but the cultural metaphysics of Protestantism tends to be very averse to looking deep into oneself and saying that there's this sinful state. Um, That I go to church every Sunday, so I'm a good person, blah, blah, blah. Of course, now, like most Catholics are like this too. But my point is that Catholics have been Protestantized. They lost the culture war that was going on in the 17th and 16th, 17th century. The Counter-Reformation just made the Catholics worse. But... My point being here is that we're all Protestants. You know, no matter if you're atheist, Orthodox, Catholic, we're, in America, we're all Protestants. And Protestantism has this aversion to self-introspection. And, and again, also this sort of fast food ideology with psychology. And just the main fact that, especially with psychology, which is not a science in the modern sense of the word, it's very much a philosophy. What is said or taught by professors is mostly going to come down to what is being funded and what, what is the ideology. It's not going to, it's not going to be something you do in a lab, right? Um, or even what studies in a lab get funded. And sci- the medication industry does not like psychoanalysis. Okay, it's too long. It's too expensive. Uh, we want people... Also, the whole philosophy of psychoanalysis is very antagonistic to that because that, that view is like you have a problem, all right? We're not really that interested in why the problem exists. We're just going to give you the right amount of pills to make the chemicals in your brain stop manifesting those symptoms. Okay, they're not interested in really what's going on deep inside. Psychoanalysis is the opposite. It has, oh, you have these symptoms. Well, that's interesting. Are you going to solve them? Well, not really. That's not really our concern here. They might go away when we do, you know, when we do psychoanalysis. But our concern is why are these symptoms exhibiting themselves on a deeper level? Okay. And really, even in that regard, taking medication is bad because it, it disguises the symptom. And, and the symptom for a psychoanalysis is always a sign. Now, that being said, you need to get rid of one symptom with medication, the hydraulic you know, it'll, it'll come elsewhere, right? But you still want to deal with the symptom as a sign in of itself. And the more primal you get the symptom, the better. I think I understand. Now, was there another aspect you wanted to address? <laughs> remember, we were talking about the docket earlier. Do you remember what the last thing on that was? The, well, it's what we already covered with the um, mm-hmm. nuclear family. All right. So I guess any more kind of closing remarks? What would you say to this friend of mine who is anonymous, who... Uh, is having trouble being Catholic because of their stance on homosexuality. And it is different from her. It's very different. What would you say to her? But she wants to be Christian. I would say then be Christian. We shouldn't let, again, 
if 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 we agree with everything our religious establishment or church says, um, I think that's in a certain sense something to be more worried about. Religion is not something that we're meant to agree with. Religion should weird us out. It should mystify us. It should disgust us, just like sex does. Okay. Um, you should not be one religion or the other because you agree or disagree with it. In in regards to these things, at least. Um, if, if, for lack of a better word, understand these things as exoteric, right? Representations of the esoteric. Um, and again, what I was saying earlier in regards to like any of the stuff the church saying about homosexual or whatever, it's culture war. It, again, you know, the, the prohibition against sodomy is there and that's important. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not giving a, a judgment on that one way or the other. But my point is like, it should not go away just because we as a culture have evolved or whatever you want to say, we're enlightened or whatever, to a state where we no longer think like that. The church isn't something, churches, religion are not something exactly that are meant to just evolve with whatever society or culture feels like. And it's important to keep in mind historically that for one, to even think of things in regards to sexuality at all is very new. But even in so far that's new, thinking of this as something that's totally normal okay i mean again my point is like even in cases in greece or or japan but especially more so in greece where you have what would now anachronistically be understood as like a certain uh, cultural interpretation understanding of homosexuality even they were not engaging in the sort of sodomitic relations usually in any cultural appropriate context that we now exhibit both in between heterosexuals and homosexuals um, which is to say mostly anal things, okay? This was always understood as being very disgusting. And it's very, very, very recent, gay or straight, whatever, in history, to understand that as something that's like, okay. Okay, again, I'm not giving one judgment or the other. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not making a moral judgment on this. I'm saying historically, that's very new. And I think we're narcissistic as moderns. We say, well, we think it now, therefore it's the absolute truth in all time and all places. That is not how religion works. Religion does not bend to our whim, all right? And we should always have some level of resistance in relation to religion. That resistance should be the cross and the concentration by which we mold ourselves, okay? Um, we should not be comfortable with religion. And I think the, the attitude that your friend has to begin with, to say nothing about whatever, whether or not this is true or good or whatever, um, is, is in the wrong. We should not really try to make religion into this thing that just suits our every whims and desires and ideologies. All right. All righty. I think that is about the end of the 50 minutes. Um, I think this one was very interesting. I will tell her that or have her listen to this. I don't think I can just <laughs> summarize that. Uh, as we... Uh, head out we would like to give an update on one of the next guests will be someone we will be talking about demons especially in northern lexington to anyone who lives out there um we'll be talking about demons and any closing remarks before we turn off the microphones um don't go silently into that dark night all right all right see you next time <laughs>